from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm your host, Craig Sauer, Senior Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. On today's podcast, we listen to part two of my interview with Andrew Downen, the Managing Director of Research at the Filene Research Institute. Prior to joining Filene, Downen led product development at Schools First Federal Credit Union and was the Vice President of Marketing at Partners Federal Credit Union. We pick up the conversation as we start to talk about Filene's I3 program, which fosters innovation in the credit union movement. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the I3 program. First of all, I'll just tell people a little bit about it. What, if they don't know about it, uh, what is it? And you know, what are some of the things that uh, you hope that Filene hopes to generate from the I3 program? Yeah, so I3 has been around since uh, the early 2000s. I think we're in our 14th year, almost on our 15th anniversary. Uh, that's that's going to be a cause for celebration. So just you all wait. <laughs> um, but so maybe they got it start. Uh, before the last financial crisis, and you think about kind of these periods that credit unions have gone through and you know, been tremendous change, and it was really based on a, uh, a movement kind of shared angst at the time that our credit unions need to be more innovative. And this was 2003, 2004, so the iPhone hadn't even been created. So think about the level of kind of disruption that we were considering at that time and now where we're at. But really the, the idea behind i3 is that let's tap into the collaborative nature of our movement to bring together truly the best and the brightest um, minds within the movement, uh, typically middle managers. So um, these are VPs, directors, people that um, can have influence at their credit unions and display some level of creativity and empathy and really the grit to get stuff done. And you bring them together to volunteer their time over two years. And so this is above and beyond their day job. I, re- I was an I3-er when I, uh, uh, representing schools first, when I was uh, out at schools first. And it's a ton of work. And it is awesome. And you make new friends, professional colleagues who I continue to lean on to this day. And it's a ton of work. And it's stressful. And it's inspiring. And basically this group of 16 individuals that are brought in every year um, are asked to empathize with credit unions, empathize with their members, see what the biggest problems are that consumers are facing, operational challenges that credit unions are facing, put some creativity to it and come up with some cool ideas and go beyond that though because an idea is useless unless you actually put it into practice and build it. So the I3ers prototype their ideas, they test them, they get up in front of the industry and pitch them. So if anybody's ever been to Finnovate, um, that's that's what these I3ers are doing at the end of six months. They're they're pitching their ideas to, to credit unions and leaders uh, with the ultimate goal of bringing some of them to market. Uh, and we've had a couple that have gone to market, which is great. We've got others that are kind of uh, uh, on deck that we're going to be moving into our incubator. Have over 200 ideas over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And what, what have been some of the, the success stories uh, yeah. from the I3 program? Yeah, so one of uh, uh, the biggest success stories was a concept uh, came out uh, 2009-ish, let's say. Um, and it was all based on, again, depths of the financial crisis. People were trying to get back on their feet. They needed assistance. The Internet was here and it was being used. Um, but people weren't necessarily wanting to um, ask or advice in a um, upfront, face-to-face way at that at that time. They wanted advice, but they wanted it in a more anonymous format. 
so an I3 team came up with the concept at the time. It was called Debt and Focus, and now it's known as Savvy Money. Uh, basically, uh, online credit advice. It's now uh, grown into a way for credit unions to better understand their members, to deliver products and services, and kind of deepen that relationship, uh, bringing credit scores into the picture and things like that. So that's one of our, our uh, most proud uh, developments. There's another one that has absolutely, well, I won't say absolutely no technology, but very little technology. Um, and it was about a concept called prize link savings. Uh, so uh, prize link savings, it's basically a way to tap into people's love of playing the lottery, but the reality of you know, the average household spending upwards of $500 a year on the lottery with nothing to show except a bunch of wasted uh, lottery tickets on my floor. Well, what if we tapped into that excitement and developed a, a deposit product? basically that uh, you know, rewards one or two people per quarter for you know, saving. Um, and this idea, uh, it, it started overseas, but in the U.S. it was born out of a collaboration between I3, uh, Michigan Credit Union League, uh, and a couple of researchers who brought it to life. And now it's uh, legal in, I think we're up to 20 states, and it came out of the creativity, creativity of I3ers. It's pretty cool. What were some of the ideas that were percolating when you went through the program and ideas that you got involved in when you were uh, a participant? Yeah, so there was an idea, and I still hold out hope that at some point we'll do something with this, but it was called Census, C-E-N-T-S-U-S. Um, -E and the whole idea around this was tackling this challenge of um, buyer's remorse and retail therapy, that so often we as human beings... Uh, the economists will never say this, but we're not really as rational as uh, the economists would think that we are. Uh, emotions come into play. Uh, we have a really bad week at work, so I'm going to go blow off some steam at uh, West Town Mall. And so the idea with Census was about 48 hours after transactions post, we'd ask the member, hey, you've had some time to kind of sit and you know, you know, hope maybe wear that shirt that you bought or you know, enjoy that fancy dinner out. How did it make you feel? Are you truly happy with that purchase that you made? And would learn people's happiness about purchases over time and then send out notifications and trying trying to nudge people into happier spending. Members were really all over it. It was it turned out to be a little bit too difficult of a feasibility challenge. Uh, and and quite honestly, it was difficult to make a, a financial case for credit unions. Um, so we, we want our ideas to succeed. But we know that in the world of innovation, you're going to throw 10 darts. And if, you're, if you get two to hit the bullseye, you're actually pretty lucky. Every once in a while, you'll, you'll get a flop. And I'm totally proud to share that census didn't go where we thought it was going to. Um, and we learned from it. And that's, that's such a big part of innovation. Um, I know you're no longer managing the I3 program, uh, but you did for, for several years, your first couple of years at, at Filene. Um, I'm wondering if you learned anything about innovation from like managing that program, from overseeing that program. Yeah, definitely. I, I think setting appropriate expectations uh, and kind of going back to what we were talking about around kind of being comfortable with uh, not, not seeking out failure ever, but being comfortable with failure. And there's a total difference. None of us want to fail, um, but you have to become comfortable with failure and you have to help others become comfortable with failure, too. And, and this, I think, is a lesson that you know, I certainly learned leading the I3 program. And I think uh, leaders at credit unions, others can learn as well, is what can we do to develop and support a culture that really helps people take calculated risks? And risk will not always lead to reward. 
and maybe it's uh, you know, showcasing some of the failures that we've uh, had individually. I, I heard from one organization where uh, the CEO would take uh, employees out to lunch and they would start every lunch conversation and the CEO would talk about how he or she had failed in the last six months. And it really just kind of brought everybody down to a level to say, hey, we've all kind of had some things that didn't go all that well. We've all learned from them. And it's amazing because when you've got that, that um, psychological safety zone almost, um, people are willing to share more creative ideas. They're willing to kind of uh, let their guard down in a way. And there's nothing worse than you know, talking with an employee at a credit union. And you know, maybe you're talking about a challenge. And you hear from them, oh, yeah, well, I had this idea a couple years ago, but I never thought my manager would care. Like, oh, my goodness gracious. So learning how to create a culture that doesn't seek failure, but recognizes it and appreciates it and learns from it. Previously, you worked in credit unions before you got to Filene, uh, and you were in the product development side of things. Um, so you had to innovate within within a credit yeah. union. Uh, what was that experience like for you working inside the credit union? Uh, and then, you know, later going out over and kind of see, working at Filene and kind of looking at it from the other aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel very fortunate. And, you know, I, I, credit unions literally are in my blood. And uh, having worked at credit unions for 17 years before moving to Filene, uh, most recently at Schools First, I had the, the great joy of leading product development there. <sighs> Gosh, I, I, one of my biggest takeaways innovating within a credit union is the importance of being a salesperson. And I don't mean a salesperson from the context of, hey, I'm going to you know, buy this used car off my lot, but really selling ideas. And connecting, and it goes back to empathy. Everything, everything in the world goes back to empathy. All roads lead to empathy. Understanding if I'm the product uh, development uh, leader at a credit union, and, and I think this would be at schools first, so this would be really at any credit union. Um, and this is not a revelation, but it's knowing your audience. If I'm going to be presenting a product to an individual who oversees branch operations, this product may do awesome things for the member. This product may support our credit union's financial goals. Well, I need to make sure that my message to them is addressing the operational issues and what will this do to, to teller wait times and what will this do, uh, what new forms will we need to create. Um, and not a lot of credit unions have the scale or the resources, quite honestly, to have a dedicated product development department. So oftentimes we see it's you know the, the marketing leader who does that in, in their off hours, uh, um, or, or somebody in IT or you know, other departments are doing this. And it's really understanding the full picture and seeing that the decisions or recommendations that we may make in innovating a product or developing a product will have implications on risk and then compliance and Yes, believe it or not, on finance. And we need to understand and be able to communicate the full story. Did it take you a while to become a good a salesman of your ideas? I, I'm still not there. <laughs> um, I, I've certainly moved uh, further uh, ahead than I was even a couple of years ago. Um, and I don't, I don't know that anybody ever becomes a perfect salesman. I mean, you can go to training classes, you know, Books on tape, or I guess that's really dating me. Books on CD, or even a pass, you know, just a passe thing at this point. Um, you you learn by just being thrown into it. Like I think about, you know, anybody who's presented, even if you're presenting research or facts, you're selling because you you you're basically 
inspiring people to care. You're inspiring people. You're competing with people's eyelids shutting, and you're competing with people checking their email on their phone. And I think back to my first role. So I started out at the, the Credit Union for Disneyland employees in 1997, Partners Federal Credit Union, um, as uh, somebody on the finance side. And I got the chance to present in front of a group, and I was deathly afraid. I did not want to present. And you just have to be thrown into it, and you have to flunk. You have to realize what works with certain audiences and what works with others. And you have to really connect with people's needs. Um, you know, there, there's a terminology that was, per, uh, was uh, established at Harvard and has been kind of making its way around uh, the credit union industry. That everybody's got a job to be done. And it may not be the obvious job. I, I may be presenting to somebody and the job of somebody in the audience may be simply to take a nugget of information back so that during their next performance review, they can sound even more intelligent than they already are. Their job to be done may be to take one factor figure back to, to help them move up the ladder at the creating. And that's totally legitimate and it's totally fine. And to be a good salesperson, to be a good pitcher of ideas, to be a good presenter, you have to understand why is the person sitting there listening to you and how can you really meet their needs? I know you've probably given hundreds, maybe thousands of presentations. <laughs> uh, I want to know, has there been like a uh, a big failure, a big flop? Has, have you ever had like oh my gosh. on stage? Boy. <laughs> What's like the worst one that you, that comes to mind that you're like, oh man, that actually happened? Oh, wow. Okay. Now you're really going to make me think here. Well, so any presenter is always worried about, is the clicker going to work? Is the clicker going to work? Um I, yes, yes. So I think back to a presentation I did a couple years ago. I think it was in front of a state league somewhere. And, and you know, if anybody's seen a Filene presentation, our slide decks, if, if you just kind of take a slide deck on his own, it's like, what is this person even trying to tell? We use a lot of photos and, and we, you're not going to see a ton of bullet points. We use a lot of video as well. So I was presenting, I think I was doing an innovation immersion, in fact, and I had a few videos queued up. And for some reason, the audio wasn't working and you know you can't just pause your presentation and try to figure out the audio so i learned that i could be a very good uh kind of a, a voiceover and pantomime person and uh, and and i literally <laughs> kind of performed the video and i did not do the video justice but uh so it was like vaudeville is what it, it, was. it was and thankfully i didn't have too many people walk out of the audience uh, but uh, and, and in, in the spirit of vaudeville the big gigantic cane didn't come pull me <laughs> off the stage um yeah, that happens. I, I, I think back to, to a fellow, uh, uh, a colleague at an organization. He or she will remain un, unnamed, but they were sharing with me one of their, uh, what they thought was going to be their worst presentation ever, which turned out to be one of their best. Something, again, happened with the technology. It's always the technology. And their slides didn't work. Or, and they basically said, okay, I'm talking to a group of 150 credit union executives. What's on your mind? What do you want to talk about? And basically just was a conversation. And it was a great presentation. So I think when you go into it not too invested in, you want a good outcome, but when you're not invested in the means to get into that outcome, yeah, maybe the video is not going to work. Maybe I have a, a train of thought that takes me totally off script. Um, having that flexibility to kind of know that uh, you're going to get to that end point, you're going to inspire them, and it's going to be a windy road to get there, <laughs> it kind of makes the presentations more natural. And, and honestly, from the presenter's standpoint, it makes them a lot more fun. Uh, do you have a... Uh, an example of where something like that, where it went 
exceedingly well above expectations since I, I asked mm. you the flip side of that? I don't know. I, I, I'm always so critical of myself. I don't think I ever do a great job. And I'm sure people are going to, yeah, I've seen him present. He doesn't. Um, no. um, gosh. I, I would say in general, my kind of sense of if I've helped facilitate a successful presentation is the amount of Q&A and discussion that, 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 that comes out of it. And um, I, I love, you know, after a presentation, you'll get people from the audience who will come up and, you know, they want to share a story or, or dig in a bit deeper to an idea. But in my mind, it, it, it's, I, I kind of, I'm like, I want to be professor. At some point, I, I do want to go, get, and this isn't surprising anybody at Filene, uh, but I want to get my PhD. And then I, I kind of have this uh, inner professor in me. And, you know, you hear this when you talk to teachers or, or others. A lot of teaching is around inspiring, and, and I, I get so much enjoyment personally out of speaking and presenting in front of groups, and, and hopefully if I can inspire 50% plus one of the audience to be incrementally more engaged or interested or educated on the topic, then that's a total success. Hopefully it's more like 90% plus one. <laughs> <right. laughs> Let's set the bar high. <laughs> is that something you've always had? Um, that you have you always wanted to be the person like help me i don't know where, yeah. where does that come from within I, yourself yeah I, I i i don't know I, I i wish i knew because i could like go on the speaking circuit and then uh, make that my my presentation <laughs> you know, find your inner whatever it is but um and it's not innate and it's not natural for everybody and that's you know personalities but when i got my start in credit unions i was more deathly afraid of getting up in front of an audience and you just kind of have to be thrown into it you kind of have you have to certainly have the support of uh, of people who are willing to give you a shot um i don't know in, in a way i i think a lot of us in the the credit union movement probably have that kind of uh mentality of wanting to help a teacher really a professor is really there to help somebody and i think by and large credit union people whether you're a teller or a ceo or a volunteer you're there because you see the the value beyond the transaction you see the 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 benefit beyond the paycheck and you really want to help somebody just be a better person or a better consumer whatever they're looking to to achieve in their life and, and i and i will say in addition to kind of having that mentality of wanting to help and one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Tansley Stearns, who, um, you know, just a legend in this industry, and I've learned so much from too, um, she shared with me one of her, you know, the traits that she always kind of thinks in her own mind is as she's getting up on stage, and I, she won't mind me sharing this, I know, is really having an attitude of, uh, oh boy, this sounds really cheesy and it wasn't meant to, an attitude of gratitude. As that started to come out, it sounded like a total buzz phrase. <laughs> a mentality of gratitude, let's say that. That's probably been trademarked. But but really, um, not everybody gets to be in the position of being a presenter or in the position of teaching or inspiring. And having a perspective of gratitude really just, it's changed my mindset. And it makes me so thankful and appreciative of getting that opportunity. Um, I'm very gracious to, to have this chance to be on the podcast today. Not everybody does. Um, and I think when a presenter looks at it from a standpoint of being gracious, it's easy to overcome the fear. Um, people wouldn't be in that room if they didn't want to be in that room. People wouldn't be listening to you if they didn't want to listen to you. So use that uh, as an opportunity and cherish it, really.
So I know you said you said you started on the finance side of things in credit unions. Yeah, you're, yeah. An, you're an accountant. I, the, I am. The, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so I want to know how does an accountant go from you know how do you go from an accountant to becoming innovative innovation guy God. at Filene at, at a credit, credit union industry think tank? How do you go from that to that? Well, it was Southern California. There was an earthquake in the middle of the night. I literally fell out of bed and hit my head. No, um, that, that no. Uh, yeah, I mean, so my background, my undergrad is in accounting. I, this is really dorky, and I'm going to admit it. Grew up in Arizona. My first uh, professional job out of college uh, was working as an auditor for the state of Arizona Auditor General's Office. That's a mouthful. Basically, I would drive around and audit school districts and things like that. I had a personalized license plate that said, I audit. And, and I am so amazed to this day that I did not get egged or keyed, or my car didn't get egged or keyed. But so my background is in accounting. And so my first role at a credit union, um, it was in LA, opened up the want ad. So this was the 90s. There still were want ads in the paper in the Los Angeles Times. There was this ad for Disneyland. It was like, Disneyland is looking for a financial analyst. So this is really cool. I could be a financial analyst for Disneyland get there and it's for the Disneyland Credit Union. And I will freely admit, and I was like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, but I'd been a member of credit unions and I understood what credit unions were and I was still very intrigued and got the job as a financial analyst. And um, over the first couple of years working at uh, Partners Credit Union, had the chance to work with some marketing colleagues on doing some analysis of product uh, recommendations, you know, feature and benefits changes and things like that. Um, and, and really kind of just by trial and error, found that I had an interest in the marketing side of the world. And that is literally the, the biggest left brain, right brain argument possible to have one a person in his own mind saying, this is the greatest marketing campaign ever. And then the other side is brain arguing, but it's going to cost too much money. And how do we, how do we balance those two? Um, it, it really goes back to what I think credit unions do so well, and especially the smaller credit unions is, is giving, and maybe it's out of necessity because we have you know, smaller credit unions have fewer people on staff, is giving people the chance to try new things and, and uh, be exposed to new uh, opportunities and skills. And through that, um, was able to, to make the leap over to the marketing side. And, and I think, and you see this so much today, that, you know, especially with CEOs, other leaders, that it's getting rarer and rarer to have a leader that is only ver versed in one area of a business. And this goes for any industry, but certainly for credit unions. You know, I, I can think of somebody who I worked with who was a, an IT leader who is now the CEO of a credit union uh, because he'd had the chance to be exposed to other aspects. It, it's just kind of taking those uh, those risky chances and um, uh, the bull by the horns or whatever the cheesy phrase is and giving him <laughs> a shot. A new, that's a new license plate? That, yes, that, that's too long to fit. Uh, and I don't want to just have the license plate say bull. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> So I've moved away from one of my insights is I've moved away from personalized license plates. But uh, yeah, so really it was just uh, getting the chance to work on some projects. And uh, I think uh, as an innovator, as a leader of a credit union, you need to have exposure to at the very minimum uh, and optimally some experience working in a number of disciplines. Uh, are you surprised at where you where you've ended up right now uh, from where you began? I am. So I tell the story that for, even from my early days in credit unions, I was a dork. Well, I still am. And I would be the one to take home at the time they were printed, but the, the filing research reports. And I would take them home over the weekend and, and read them page and cover to cover. Um, and I'd always had kind of this secret desire to work at uh, Filene. 
for years I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to work there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a small organization based in Madison, Wisconsin. And, you know, for somebody who lived in Arizona and California most of my life, uh, that wasn't necessarily on my radar. And the opportunity came up after having been an i 3 and getting to know a lot of my colleagues at Filene and getting the chance to, to, to prove myself. Um, it wasn't necessarily, I, I don't know that it was ever, it was a wish, but it wasn't part of the plan. Um, so I'm pleasantly surprised to, to be where I'm at. And, and oh my goodness gracious, so fortunate to have had the chance to lead innovation on behalf of Filene and with the I3ers, really on behalf of the credit and movement. And now getting to uh, uh, be the one to lead much of our research agenda, working with uh, uh, professors at Harvard and Stanford and uh, University of Arizona. Um, I add that one in because it's my alma mater. Uh, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't have ever expected to get here, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And gets back to that gratitude. Yeah. So, what's on tap for Filene in the next uh, next uh, six months or so? What, yeah. what What are you working on? What's keeping you busy? Yeah. So, so we are moving. So, uh, the, this is very functional. This is total inside baseball. But we're moving our offices. So, oh, we're, wow. we're building a new space, and that's a really exciting. Beyond that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned working with these uh, research. Uh, um, professors, uh, what we call fellows, at uh, universities across the country. So over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, we've really focused our research effort on five main themes that are critical for credit unions. So talent, emerging technology, how, how are members approaching consumer decisions, uh, performance and operational excellence, um, uh, and organizational entrepreneurship. So we've got these five broad themes, and they're all up and running now. So we're really excited because the next year is about just perfecting that and, and just uh, ratcheting up the outputs, the, the performance. We're testing out a number of new types of output. So I'll be the first to admit 99% of the credit in the world isn't as geeky and dorky as Andrew Downen, and they don't always want to read that 50-page research paper from cover to cover. So doing more infographics and videos and really bringing a lot of our research to life in bite-sized nuggets that um, you know, hopefully executives will you know, view or listen to or see a few of these, and their appetite will be whetted to you know, open up the, the full research on one or two of those. Uh, so we're really trying to be, and, and we're having good success, and we're getting great feedback, uh, much more responsive to the way in which credit unions want to receive the research. So I'm excited about that. It, it's getting us to, to dive into new areas, like working with web developers and coders and uh, videographers and things like that. So I'm just excited for where our research is heading um, and the creativity that we're going to infuse into it and continue to infuse over the next year. Uh, you, you you said a lot of people don't like to read research reports, but you said you were that that kid that uh, was reading them. So does, does that kind of like ache your heart a little bit that the the idea of the, the white paper is is dead as as some people say? I, I, in fact, I've heard uh, um, my boss say that, yeah. and, and our, our CEO say the white paper is dead. I don't know that it's dead. I think that it's on life support, um, and I am going to nurture it and give it every chance of, sur of survival as possible. But, but honestly, though, and, and quite seriously, the 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 the, the kind of old-fashioned research paper still stands at the center of what we do. And you know, for those who have an interest and want to drill in, there's a lot of diligence and detail in that research. Those will always be at the the center of what we do. But we know that it's few people are going to be going home and, and reading the latest Filene research on a weekend. 
And maybe that inner professor in me is a little cranky about that, but the the, the pragmatic realist realizes, hey, not everybody uh, wants to read the, all those footnotes. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking, I was thinking a little bit today about the Bill Gates quote, uh, the great quote he had about about the future, and, and saying, you know, we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years, and underestimate the change that will occur in the next ten. So I want to know uh, from your standpoint, like, what do you think we're underestimating about the future? in 10 years right now what, what what kind of technologies what things are we not are we taking for granted at the moment yeah so i i, I know I've, I've talked about this in the past um but I, I really do think it's something that credit unions need to think about the emergence and and ultimately the just kind of commonality of self-driving vehicles and the way in which affordable transportation is being delivered to consumers is changing so quickly so regulation needs to catch up we're not there yet I think, if anything, that's going to be what stands in the way. That the technology is being perfected very quickly. We've seen this with, with Uber. Um, you know, Ford has on their radar that within the next five years they're going to have a mass market uh, self-driving vehicle. Um, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen sooner than I think any of us suspect. Um, and when I talk to creditors about this, I do get a lot of deer in the headlights uh, or responses of like, well, good thing I'm retiring in three years. <laughs> um, and it's not the death knell of credit unions. It really isn't. It, but what it requires, I'm talking with my hands here, folks, is um, it requires credit unions to think differently. It requires us to really understand how can we continue to be relevant at solving that root challenge. And that root problem or challenge isn't trying to finance a car. That's the way in which we address it now. It's getting low-priced, easy-to-use, easy-to-access transportation in the hands of our members. And so one of the potentials that we're not saying go invest in this right now, but think about it, is what if a credit union, or even better yet, let's believe and live our collaborative roots as a movement, a group of credit unions gets together when the time is right and the regulations have been changed, Say so we're going to buy a pool of 5,000 self-driving vehicles. And instead of lending to each individual member on a car that's literally going to sit in their garage or their parking lot at work 22 out of 24 hours a day, let's rent to them access. Hey, you're a member of a financial cooperative. You're a member of our community. For X dollars per month, you'll have access to this pool of self-driving vehicles. We're, we're doing the same thing that we're doing today. We are helping them finance transportation, but it's going to be in a completely different way. And it's in a way that I think really fits well within the philosophy of credit unions. Uh, and I'm going to toss out an a economic geek term, but uh, and, and anybody who's ever listened to me talk is going to laugh when they hear this, but marginal utility. So there is a portion of, of uh, the, the 22 hours a day that a car is just sitting idle. We're still having to pay 100% of the price for the car. We're still having to pay 100% of the insurance. But we're not getting all the full utility of that as we could if we shared. What a great chance for credit unions. So I, I really do think that... Um, we're going to see self-driving vehicles, the technology perfected sooner than anybody expects. Um, it's a good opportunity for credit unions to be at the forefront of that when the time is right. So you really think uh, with this, the coming of autonomous vehicles that people are going to be, be less inclined to own their own vehicle and it's going to be more of like a rental service type thing? Uh, I know millennials like to own less things that's yeah, kind of a trend yeah. of where things are going but you see that society wise because i know i mean over the last you know century americans have been very 
uh, individualistic, uh, want, not necessarily being big on public transportation. Yep. You know, yeah. we've been a, the highway system has been a big reason for that. So you really see that as a, a big shift in the way Americans uh, are going to be relating to society in the future? So I, I do think that as a society, we are slowly moving back to being comfortable with um, kind of consuming as a group versus consuming as individuals. And, and there are so many other factors at play. And it's not to say that this is kind of a, a straight line and we're only going to ever head in this direction. There may be some other uh, event or occurrence or societal shift that causes us to take another pivot. But I mean, the, the signs are pointing that by and large consumers are more open to it. And yeah, I mean, the, the model really is kind of renting a car by literally the minute or by the hour and, and it really gets back to this idea of ease of use, where if it's easy for us to collaboratively consume, you know, a lot of the barriers are, well, I want to have the freedom to go where I want when I want. Okay, well, we will get to a point where with self-driving vehicles, collaboratively owned vehicles, you can go wherever you want. If you just want to get in a car and take a Sunday drive or just, uh, you know, that'll be possible. So I, I think, you know, society is moving in a direction where there's more of a, an appetite for group consumption. Spinning out even farther, uh, once uh, autonomous vehicles are uh, a thing that we're all used to, that's maybe what everybody will use in the future, um, how is this going to filter out and affect the rest of society? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think, though, that the changes are going to be more dramatic than any of us expect. And, and it's all tied back to technology. Um, we have the data to be able to wring out every last minute and cent of utility from anything. And that can work uh, for us or it can work against us. I, you know, we see this I, uh, in the gig economy where you know, part of the, the appeal for um, the buyers of labor, so companies, firms, is uh, being able to basically not pay for more than we have to pay for. And that is great from a buyer's perspective and that works for a consumer. I don't have to pay for more of a car than I need. Um, but it does expose some risk for us as suppliers of labor. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to this, this ethics conversation that we had. You know, at what point does our, our rational use of data you know, support or contradict us as humans and us as a society? Well, here we are back talking about ethics. It all boils down to philosophy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. And you can connect with me on Twitter at CUNA Craig.